So hear God's word to you, brothers and sisters, from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. This word is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Corey, and thank you all for inviting me to be part of uh, worship with you and also this vision casting that's going on here. It's very exciting what you all are thinking about and doing here at Third Church, and I'll be excited to see how it all unfolds uh, over the coming years. Um, I do want to talk about renewal uh, in the city, but I want to start with a question, and maybe a surprising question. I don't want you to answer the question. It's a thought question, but I want you to ask yourself— if you think we live in a Christian country, now I know that is a subject of hot debate among uh, some people, whether we now live in a Christian country, whether we ever had a Christian country, whether our current president is moving us more towards a Christian country or more away from a Christian country. So uh, the reason I want to ask that question this morning is not that I'm going to try to propose an answer to that question. Rather, I'm interested in why we might think to ask that question. Because my suspicion is that some people ask that question because if they come up with the answer that no, we don't live in a Christian country, that gives them a reason to just disengage with the wider society, to just, you know, just kind of uh, cocoon in with their families and enjoy their relationship with the Lord and just hunker down and wait for the Lord's return and not to engage with uh, the wider world. So if that's, if that's at all a possibility within our sphere, then we need to listen carefully to our text this morning, because Jeremiah has uh, some strong advice, some strong, uh, actually a strong command from the Lord as to whether or not we should disengage in that kind of situation. So the first thing that we need to notice about our text today is uh, the context to which Jeremiah writes these challenging words, because Jeremiah uh, brings a command from the Lord and uh, sends it by way of letter to a group of God's people, but they're living not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city. That is the city uh, that God chose to be a place where his name would dwell, which was meant to be kind of a shining example of what it, likes, what it would be like to live under God's kingdom to the rest of the nations. Jerusalem is kind of the ideal environment for God's people, but he's not writing to them in Jerusalem. He writes to them in Babylon. Babylon is far away from Jerusalem. Babylon is under control of a foreign nation that does not know their God. They are not honored or respected as people of God, a very difficult kind of environment. They live in Babylon. They live in exile. And so the first thing we need to discover from this text is if we feel at all like our culture, our society is not respecting or encouraging or supporting our values 
as God's people, that doesn't give us an excuse to not be engaged with the culture. Because Jeremiah writes these challenging words to a people in exile. We, as possibly people in exile as well, need to listen to these words as well. And the, the first message that we get is a message of engagement. We're going to start with kind of a, a shotgun approach. Uh, after uh, saying, uh, you know, addressing the folks in Babylon, Jeremiah goes on uh, with a series of verbs in the imperative, uh, imperative verbs, which if you have forgotten your grammar lesson, imperative means a command. So a series of commands to build and to settle and to, and to plant and to eat and to marry. Wait a second, where'd it go? Oh, it's still going there. Uh, to have sons and daughters, to find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. All right, my screen's not showing what your screen's showing, but have no fear. I can look backwards and I'll turn around in just a moment. So uh, the first message is these, these dozen verbs tell us as sort of a blanket statement that we are not to disengage in exile, but we are to, to live intentionally as God's people. That's, that's the first message. It's so tempting to disengage, but we're to live intentionally as God's people. Now, there's a, there's a lot of verbs we're going to get into, most of them, in, in just a moment, but I want to divide that text up just a little bit to help us make sense of it. The first half of what Jeremiah uh, writes... Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I've got one more thing to do before I get there. Uh, just in case there's a concern that, um, that we might think that, that this is just Jeremiah's opinion. Or maybe Jeremiah is just in a feisty mood, right? He writes before breakfast and he's hungry, so he writes kind of these challenging words. Just in case we think this is just from Jeremiah, Jeremiah wants to make it perfectly clear where this comes from. Invokes the name of God, not once, but twice. He first uh, invokes the Lord Almighty, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the word in Hebrew that's used to, uh, it's more intimate and more personal. It's so holy that that, that the Jews wouldn't even speak that name aloud. And then, uh, secondly, he evokes the name of the God of Israel, right? The God of Israel, Elohim, which is the more majestic, sort of uh, overarching over all creation name for God. And both of those names, he pulls out both barrels to deliver this challenging uh, message uh, to us. Okay, so we go back uh, to the, the, the text itself. And it starts, I, I like to, to think of his, his challenging verbs in two parts. Uh, the first part is meant to address us uh, with regards to our home. So if you can imagine yourself standing at the front door of your home and you turn around and you face towards the inside uh, of your house, that's where the first set of messages come to. In the second half, you turn around and face the world outside. So it's a kind of a two-part message. So we'll start with just the, the message for while we're looking in, looking at our own homes. And we get a series of verbs, build, uh, and settle, and plant, and eat, and marry, and increase, have children, all this, all this kind of advice. And the first impression that it makes on us, at least it made on me, is it seems kind of ordinary and not very spectacular to warrant a command from Elohim and Yahweh. It almost sounds like advice from Martha Stewart. Plant a garden, build a house, settle down, get cozy, you know, it just, it just doesn't sound very... <clears throat> but that said, and we're going to get to <clears throat> in just a moment, that said, I'm really glad, actually, that, that Jeremiah, well, the Lord through Jeremiah, starts with our domestic life. Because I think it's really 
uh, tempting to think that the, the challenge to seek the welfare of the city and to engage out in the culture means to turn our back or neglect or devalue our home lives. But in fact, that's not the case at all. In fact, it's very important as we think about engaging the larger culture that we pay attention to our home lives. Our home lives are vital. That's where our children, uh, their identities are nurtured and, 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 and their identities are formed. That's where we have a safe place to, to make sense of the world and to, and to, to practice trust and relationships. And we build a lot of our identity in our home life. And that's so vital that we start there before we go out uh, to impact the world. In fact, I think what Jeremiah is describing in the verbs around the domestic sphere is a kind of human flourishing at home. And so he, he, he instructs us to seek human flourishing in the context of our home. So let's take a moment to, to think about what, that, what we've just heard from Jeremiah. Human flourishing, first of all, uh, we, is grounded in a, in a particular way. And we can, we can think of all the verbs that, that Jeremiah gave us under three headings. One is uh, verbs having to do with our body. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. So, so we care about the taking care of the needs of our body. There's also a sense of place, a sense of belonging. So build houses and dwell within them. We, we're supposed to do that as well. And then there's relationships. Have children, uh, marry, have children, and then you know, have your children marry and continue to form these strong bonds of relationship. And so this picture of human flourishing is a, sort of a full-bodied. It's, it involves our bodies, our place, and our relationships. Now, we listen to this text uh, in a slightly different place than the original audience, right? It's a slightly different time. And the significant thing that we have experienced, that the, that the exiles have not experienced, of course, is the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we hear this message on this side of the cross, and we can't ignore the cross because it changed everything. So we have to make sure the cross is in our picture of human flourishing before we move on. And so our, 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 our flourishing is grounded in these three ways, but it's rooted in Christ. We know that the only way for anyone to truly flourish is when they live in a, a, a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have, to, we have to hold on to that, whatever else we say. That said, I don't want us to forget the first part, where we are grounded when we think about uh, how we are rooted. Let me put it this way. Jesus Christ came to save us not from our bodies, to save us not from our places and not from our relationships, but Jesus Christ came to save us in the context of embodied people in place, in relationships, and then redeems us in that context as well. So he came to save us as full-bodied human beings. Okay, so that's, that's, uh, that's sort of the domestic side. Now you have to picture yourself turning outward uh, to the, the neighborhoods outside of your houses, to the neighborhood outside of this church, and uh, Jeremiah tells us to seek the peace and the prosperity uh, of these places. Okay, so now we've got another set of commands to consider. And uh, the word there for peace and prosperity is shalom. That's the Hebrew word that's being translated, uh, peace and prosperity. You probably are familiar with the word shalom. Oftentimes it's translated simply peace. But we know that uh, there's no good single word English equivalent uh, for shalom. It's a much richer term. When we say the word peace uh, in our culture, people generally think of the absence of conflict, like two countries who are not fighting each other are at peace. Or we think about it as kind of inner tranquility, like I go to yoga class, 
so that I can experience peace in my, you know, whatever. So that, neither of those capture the fullness of peace, right? Peace involves uh, a flourishing of, in body and place and uh, relationships. In, in fact, I think that in, in the way that shalom comes up in this text, I wonder if Jeremiah isn't using uh, this, this command to the outside world and, and the word shalom here to capture some of what he's just said about the domestic sphere in the sense that uh, flourish in your homes and then turn around and, and also flourish, bring flourishing, bring shalom to the surrounding community. So I think that's, that's probably what Jeremiah is doing here. So let's, let's pause for a moment and just work with this word shalom because it's a very rich word. As I've said, it's, it's about flourishing and it has lots of different dimensions. But the one thing that, that, that is really clear about uh, uh, shalom is that we, tr- we fully experience shalom when we're, when, when, when we're in the unmediated presence of the Lord. And if you think about that full picture of shalom, we really only see that clearly twice in the Bible. There's two occasions where we see humanity experiencing the fullness of shalom. Um, uh, come on. Come on, slide. Um, so one of them is in the beginning of uh, Genesis in chapter 2 uh, in the garden. That's a, a time when the humanity experiences shalom in fellowship with God. The second time is at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, where the new Jerusalem, where the new heavens and the new earth come down and humanity experiences shalom again in the presence of, 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 of God. And so these two pictures of shalom that we get in the Bible are similar in a lot of respects, right? They both involve body, place, and relationship. We think about the, the Genesis account. Uh, God formed uh, man as a, in, into a body, and then he placed him in a garden, and then he formed woman out of the man and developed the first relationship, right? So you get body, place, and relationship in, in Genesis. And we get the same body, place, and relationship in the New Jerusalem as we have resurrected bodies where we're in a particular place with others. They're very different environments as well, though. We have to think about the differences. Genesis shows a picture of shalom that's organic and small-scale and relatively simple. It's a nuclear family in the middle of a garden, right? The New Jerusalem is, is more complex. It's more, uh, there's more going on. There's buildings. There's streets. There's more people. And those more people we can imagine are organized in some way, some kind of society. So it's a more complex kind of thing. But it's also characterized by shalom. The other thing we know about these two pictures of shalom is that we don't live in either of them. Uh, we live in between, right? In fact, we can plot our trajectory somewhere along this line. We look backwards over our shoulder to our ancestors who started in a garden. We look forward to, in hope to the promise that Christ gave us, that he goes to prepare a place for us in this new Jerusalem. So we've been, we've, we look back there, we look forward. The question is, what, what are we supposed to do in between these two pictures of shalom. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah's instructions are, 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 are meant for. Because shalom, even though we don't get to experience it in the unmediated way like in the garden, and we don't experience it yet as we will in the New Jerusalem, we still can experience uh, a, a, some degree of shalom through one way. That is through being obedient to God's call on our lives. First of all, through being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but then being obedient to God's call in our lives 
That is how God intends to have us experience shalom in our lives. And insofar as we follow God's lead, we experience more uh, shalom uh, in our lives, both as individuals, as families, and even as society as a whole can be more or less shalom-like according to how close it aligns itself to God's will uh, for human life. Now, I don't need to tell anyone here that that doesn't always work out very well, that we don't do a great job uh, either individually or in a societal sense in being obedient. And so we, we vector away from shalom, and that vectoring is known as sin. And we move away from God's uh, desire, design uh, for our lives. We sin, and the result of that sin is unshalom-like circumstances. We bring a lot of pain and alienation and heartbreak uh, because of our sin. And that's the condition of the world uh, that we live in. So God's people are called to help in this situation uh, by bringing renewal. That's the word you guys are using. It's a fabulous word. Uh, we bring renewal by, by, by trying to pull things back towards shalom as much as we can. Now, there's two ways uh, that we can do this. We can do that, first of all, through evangelism. I mentioned before, the only way for us to truly experience the fullness of shalom is through a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we, we let people know about Jesus Christ, invite them to accept his grace, uh, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a vital part of experiencing shalom. Uh, but we can also do it by helping uh, to, to, to move our society as a whole more towards the, the good, flourishing life that God had, uh, has called us for. Now, that can sometimes be just simply a blessing to our larger communities as we try to pull them back in a more shalom-like state. Or it can be maybe a first step towards somebody wanting to be in relationship with Christ as they see Christians advocating for shalom in their neighborhoods. They think, I want to be part of that. I want to know more about what's motivating that. Now, that's, that's the call to, uh, to, to, to seek renewal. The temptation, because it's sometimes a hassle to, to seek renewal, the temptation is disengagement, right? We just think, oh, it's too much trouble. It's, it's, it's hard, and it's sometimes you know, people don't receive it very well. I just want to disengage. I want to go back to the garden. I want to just hunker down with my family, have my quiet time, and just close the shutters and wait for Christ to return. Like, that's what I want to do, right? That's disengagement. But we are called uh, by the Lord to not do that, to engage. So the question, uh, the question for us is uh, where are the... Oh, let me, I'm sorry. Let, let, me, let me say, Jeremiah then uh, tells us to seek the shalom of a particular place. In this case, the city to which I have carried you into exile. So for the first audience, they're, they're thinking about Babylon. How can we make Babylon more shalom-like? We're not in Babylon. We are uh, in Richmond in the United States of America. So we're thinking about how do we seek shalom in our context? Or, or another way to think about that is where are the parts of our society that feel very unshalom-like? And how can we help push those a little bit back towards the condition of shalom? Now, there's lots of ways we could take this. Uh, the one I want to hone in on this morning, just to give this some concreteness, has to do with human relationships. I think there's one aspect of our human relationships, especially outside of our homes, out in the wider culture, that's really not functioning very well right now. It's really not working, and it's a lot of unshalom-like uh, kinds of things. And it has to do with... Uh, three pieces of glass. We're going to talk about three pieces of glass that have really had a negative impact, in my opinion, on our human relationships, which are so important to human flourishing. And it goes back about 70 years 
when we as an American society decided to build our entire culture around an automobile. Now, I don't have any problem with automobiles. I think they're great. I own two of them. I drive them places, and I'm teaching my kids to drive cars. The problem is we designed our whole society around the expectation that everybody would get everywhere by driving an automobile. Now, that opened up a whole bunch of possibilities. We could live further away. We could build bigger houses, a different kind of lifestyle where we live one place. We shop here. We work here. We worship here. We're kind of spread out. And I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of, of all that. All I want to say is we have decided, made some decisions that have led to us spending an inordinate amount of time behind the wheel of an automobile. And that means that we experience the world from this perspective with a, with a windshield between us and the rest of the world and between us and other human beings. And I'll say this, that when you encounter another person and you're driving a car and they're driving a car, you don't always treat them as uh, human beings <laughs> for whom you might have a kind of relationship. Uh, in fact, you treat them as competitors for lane space, for parking spaces. Uh, you cr- critique their driving techniques. They're either going too slow or too fast, and you say things about them and to them that are shocking, even to yourself sometimes, right? You find yourself saying stuff behind the wheel of an automobile that just shocks you, and it's, it's partially because of the context. You're separated by all this glass. You say things that you would never imagine saying to another human being passing them on the sidewalk face-to-face, right? We, we just have a natural way of civility when we're face-to-face in that context. But we've separated ourselves by glass, and that has caused uh, some problems. Now, that automobile choice has extended in lots of different ways, how we design spaces, how we design homes. So we've designed our homes, newer homes, to look like this. This is a perfectly nice house. It's it's, uh, it's, it's beautifully designed and all that kind of stuff. But one thing you can notice about it is it's designed for the automobile, not for the person, <laughs> right? So the first thing you see is a big garage door, uh, and, and, you can, and we've, we've, we've designed a situation where somebody can get from their office uh, building where they go down to the garage and they drive to this place. They can get into their house, into their living room, without encountering another person face-to-face out in the world, Right? And, uh, and, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Let me be really clear. There's some days where I would love to just be able to just zip home, get in my living room, and not have to encounter another person. It's very convenient. But what we've found is over time, that's a little bit boring to just never see anybody outside of our, uh, outside of our, uh, you know, our immediate family. In fact, what we used to have in our houses is front porches, and what we used to do is we used to sit on our front porches and watch the neighbors walk by, and we'd talk to them, and we'd have these kind of, you know, conversations, and it's a lot, it was kind of interesting and annoying at times, because neighbors can be annoying, but we had these conversations, and when we decided to pull in into our living rooms, we kind of missed that social interaction of the parade of characters in our neighborhood. You know what we replaced it with? Another piece of glass. TV. <laughs> And now, through our TVs, we have all these interesting characters that we can watch, even more interesting than our neighbors. They are very interesting. (laughs) Even reality shows keep ramping up how interesting they can be. But do you know what? You don't actually have a real relationship with anybody on your TV. I know that's surprising to you, but you don't actually have any kind of two-way relationship. So that's, again, pulling away from our neighbors by this piece of glass. Now, even in this situation, there is the possibility that you're going to have to meet up with someone face-to-face because you might have to get milk 
on the way home from work. Or you might have to leave this place and go pick up your kids from work, right? So that might happen. You might run into somebody at the grocery store line. You might run to another parent at pickup. But the good news is we've figured out a way to prevent you from having any face-to-face contact with those people with a third piece of glass. So everywhere you go, everybody's staring at this so they don't have to encounter each other face-to-face. So we have built a culture that's not doing a great job in terms of flourishing in human relationships. We're so disconnected in our lives, so fragmented, so far apart, and we we hardly ever see each other. It's kind of uh, a tragedy. And I I think some really good shalom work, seeking the shalom work that that we can do, is to push back against this and try to encourage more face-to-face contact. So as we think about what this might look in our culture, seeking the shalom of the place that we've been called, maybe it has something to do with having face-to-face contact with our neighbors. But here's the problem. If you were to try to buck the system and go outside your front door or whatever and talk to your neighbors or interact with other people, uh, you might find that they're not coming out of their front doors and they want to look at their screens and they, there's, no, there, there's no context in which to have these kind of relationships. So it's something that requires more than just individual initiative. It's something that we have to do collectively as institutions like the church or your neighborhood and all the different institutions and and residents that that are involved. We have to do that together to figure out how to, you know, build environments that attract people to gather and walkable spaces so we can actually recover some of these practices of face-to-face human contact. It's a big job, but the good news is our culture is already kind of moving in this direction. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of people are kind of feeling dissatisfied with all the separatedness and all that sort of, uh, you know, all those screens. There's a lot of talk about going local. There's a lot of talk about walkability. There's a lot of talk about farmer's markets and craft markets and all these kinds of things happening outside of the church where people want, they would desire to be back in touch with their neighbors and these kinds of things. And so we just have to jump in and be part of that kind of conversation. And so, and the good news is, if we, can, if we can get involved in this kind of thing and recover some of our, uh, some of our uh, practices of connecting with our neighbors, connecting with people outside of our walls, it actually is kind of fun. It's kind of delightful. And, and I love how Jeremiah says, if we do this right, if we seek the shalom of our city, of our neighborhood, it actually comes back to us and brings a kind of prosperity to us. Because as much as it's fun, or I should say as much as it's tempting to disengage to cocoon and to and disconnect and wait for Jesus to return, it's really a lot more fun to go out there and, and bump into your neighbors and talk to people and get to know them and all their oddities and all that. And uh, it, it's more exciting. And it, it, I really do think the fullness of shalom cannot be accomplished just in the safety of our own homes. It has to be involved with connecting with the neighborhood. So, so the, the real question is, 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 is drilling down really down to Richmond right here in this neighborhood what, what, what does that mean for this church? What does, it, what does it mean for this church to seek renewal in this place? And I'm very encouraged that you've already got a head start. Corey and you and your elders and all that have, have cast a wonderful vision for the future of Third. And this week, uh, you probably are aware of this, but I'll, you're going to find out more about it in just a moment. But this church has engaged this neighborhood in a conversation. Really, they haven't used this word, but really in what does shalom look like here? What would it look like if we were flourishing in our bodies and our relationships and in this place? And the neighbors have been involved and enjoying this conversation, and there's a lot of really exciting plans uh, going forward. So we're starting to form a picture of what renewal is going to look like uh, in this place. But 
all of us, most likely, are tempted to just disengage. Either, either now or later when the process gets difficult, we're going to be, oh, it's such a hassle. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to have to require some changing of our patterns. We're gonna, some of the neighbors aren't going to like these things, or they're going to push back, and we're going to have to endure. Th- Maybe I should just go retreat to the safety of my cocoon and wait for Jesus to return. And, and I, hopefully that's not uh, where you're ultimately going to be. You're all, we're all going to be tempted uh, with that. But, but that's where Jeremiah's words hopefully we'll, we'll get through, or I'm sorry, the Lord's words through Jeremiah, that we are uh, to seek the shalom of the city to which we've been called in exile. Seek the shalom to the city to which you've been called. Do not disengage, but seek the shalom in this place. Amen.